It's my honor to introduce to you as our, our guest speaker this morning, uh, the Reverend Steve Haas. He comes to us from World Vision. Most of us know World Vision through uh, their child sponsorship program, and many of you uh, support children uh, through that ministry. His, uh, his dossier reads that he's Vice President, Chief Catalyst, and World Vision Ambassador. And which means he has seen the world in some amazing ways and knows um, what human suffering around the world is all about. And uh, we are so grateful that we can have him with us here today. He uh, touched our hearts on Friday evening. Uh, we're, we're grateful that he's here. We hope he'll come back another time. But um, greet him after the service this morning. Um, and I, it's so good to see you all here this day. Let's, let's pray together. Lord uh, God, we thank you that you call us to love you because you first loved us. You call us then to live out your love for us and our love for our neighbors, to extend ourselves beyond ourselves. We are so grateful that we are reminded that there are those that represent you and represent the whole church out there in the world seeking to bring uh, relief from suffering, food for the hungry, medical care for the sick, for those who are lonely. We especially thank you for World Vision that does all of these things in your name and makes a powerful witness to the whole world. We are honored that we can be a part of that mission. So bless our brother Steve Haas this morning and the organization that he represents. We pray in your name. Amen. Good morning. It's a delight to be with you. I'm uh, from Seattle, so you can imagine what also goes on in the heart and mind of a football fan this time of day. We're so excited to be here with you uh, as an organization. We have an opportunity to talk about uh, situations of critical importance to our world. And we're just delighted that this morning we get to kind of share about an issue that's obviously on a lot of our hearts and minds. When I was trying to prepare for this particular message, I got thinking about images, images, these pictures, these these images that just keep kind of playing in our minds and hearts that somehow begin to determine how we think, how we act. They motivate us. The kingdom of God, by the way, was full of them. This was prior to Instagram, prior to Twitter, prior to Facebook, even prior to MySpace. This is when Jesus used allegory and parable to try and build a picture in the theater of the mind. He wanted to make sure people remembered certain things, certain values, certain principles of life. And so he would build these pictures, these images that would stay with us. And some of them, 2,000 years later, they're some of the most dominant ideas, some of the most forceful thoughts you and I dwell on. Wheat and weeds. Matthew 13, 24, an agricultural image of wheat and weeds growing together. And Jesus, by the very story, says there's a certain uh, individual that actually makes a decision as to who we separate who from whom. And that's not your job. Not so subtle hint as to what our focus is to be on. Sheep and goats, Jesus plays, who are you in the barnyard? Based on your compassionate reaction to this revolving door of human need. 
We just, we just gave that passage, by the way, in the service. Did you hear it? There's the family photo one. Jesus is enlarging the family photo in Matthew 12. He, he makes this remark to a worried mother who wants her son to come away, and he says, anyone who does the will of my father is my, my brother, my sister, my uncle, my aunt. Speaking of being in the family way, we were so powerfully impacted by this as a young family that we used to say anyone who came into our family who was a Jesus follower was an uncle or an aunt. Our kids started kind of catching on at about age seven. Our oldest said, you know that guy with the Polish accent, is he really our family? <laughs> it just helped balance out the dysfunction that was already resident in the family's physical bloodlines, I think. We just, you know, yeah, that's an uncle, that's an aunt, you want that one. It's critical that we pay attention to these images as they give us direction as to how to live out our faith. Given this diverse environment that you and I find ourselves in, images, they have the, they have the power to sear our memory. They have the power to motivate us to change speeds, to alter our direction, to slow down, to speed up. The ultimate power, though, is in the energy they, they, they create or evoke in terms of a meaningful response. In fact, one could say, that, that they're actually determining our relevance or their relevance, determining what we do with them. One of my favorite images was shared by Jesus in Luke 10. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And according to many surveys, you know it. After, after all, two religious leaders go by the side of the road. There's a man in the ditch. They don't pay attention. And then this is what it says. A Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He he went to him, he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn. Keep in mind, it was probably a Jewish territory inn, by the way he was giving the story. It's a Samaritan doing this. The next day he took out two denarii, he gave them to the innkeeper, look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you with any expense that, that you might have. The story of a Jewish enemy in the face of Jewish clergy disobedience rescuing a fallen person laying by the side of the road makes an indelible image in the mind and heart. The story would have been an affront to the people that Jesus was speaking to. My guess is if we contextualized it today, it would be an affront to you and I as well. I mean, when you're confronted with broken people that you stumble upon, the cardboard guy carrying homeless guy at the highway off-ramp, the person wounded by unfortunate circumstances, the people that scare us, individuals that we disdain because of the clothes that they wear or because of the religion that they reference. In telling the story, Jesus schools a guy that has Laguna Beach-level education. He makes a hero out of the last-place guy you'd ever pick to do a movement of compassion. And, of course, this wasn't new thinking. Jesus wasn't making this up. He was simply in the drumbeat of the way God directed compassionate response throughout the Old Testament. This move to compassion had precedence. It was a common theme. It kept coming up. Jesus was simply saying, and I'm in that line. I'm in that line of teachers. This is the way it works. How the people of Israel were to set themselves apart. If you listen to Moses as he's getting this directive from God, going into the promised land, the directive is basically this. I'm casting these people out. I'm pushing you in. And when you go in, you're to show compassion to the foreigner. And this is the way it's to look. And if you don't act this way, you will go the way they went. If you don't believe me, it's Deuteronomy 26. 
In other biblical imagery, God fancies himself as a loving and protective owner of a vineyard. He cares for his vines. I think he cares for his vines like you care for those rose bushes outside in the front, which are gorgeous. I've seen them. He, he creates the fruit of the vine, and they're beholding to him for nourishment and life. It's interesting in that story that he tells over and over again in terms of the image of who he is. As Jesus tells the story, our job is to produce fruit. That's our job. We're not the owners. We're not the consumers. We're not even the inspectors. In fact, he was clear fruitfulness in our life would be experienced as we place complete confidence in him. The ancient church, man, did they take this seriously. So much so that in the book of Acts in chapter 2, they were just sharing so much that 3,000 were added to their church, added to their fellowship in a single day. People were just blown away by this. And that record just kept going down through history. Later, Christians, according to Rodney Stark in his towering book, The Rise of Christianity, says that Dionysius, the bishop of Rome, about 260 A.D., said in a tribute to the fallen faithful in one of the great epidemics that had taken place, devastating the entire population, this is what he says. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another, heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And, and here's the, listen to what he's about to say. And with them departed this life serenely happy. They died. Because they were infected by the others with the disease drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. The result of great piety and strong faith seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. And then he says this. The heathen behaved the very opposite way. At first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, thereby hoping to avert the spreading contagion of the fatal disease. This all became really important about 10 years ago when the church did an about-face on the issue of HIV and AIDS and realized there's something very different between a person and a virus. You fight the virus. You love the person. Our action lined up with the legacy of Christian history. No longer ruled by fear, the church began to take authentic steps in faith and governments, whole governments, began to take note and began to follow. Our own country went from about 700 million for AIDS relief to 50 billion. Why did that happen? I was in the middle of it. It's because the church woke up and the church began to just operate in the way in which the church was always supposed to operate. Our actions created a frame for faith. We built a clear image as to what and who we are, what motivates us, what makes us do what we do. And they saw Jesus. Well, during these days of awakening the faith community about the reality of the AIDS pandemic, we've also noticed that there's a great need beyond AIDS, and it's called Syrian refugees. Syrian refugees. This we know over the last four years, the Infamous Arab Spring has morphed into an Arab winter with massive nation states playing out their aspirations for the region with obscene levels of weapons, with unspeakable violence, with slavery, with barbarism, bestial displays, and 
people displacements that frankly at this time are on historic levels. And the violence hasn't been contained to Syria. We saw around Christmas time what happens in the streets of Beirut, in the streets of Paris, in the streets of San Bernardino. And the numbers as to what's and who's been affected are staggering and nearly impossible to comprehend. In Syria alone, over half of 24 million people are on the run. Half. And that's just in the last three to four years. Some seven to eight million people have become internally displaced, while some five to six million are finding a safe place outside the confines of their own country. And you've got to start thinking about what would put someone in a rubber dinghy, a packed rubber boat, overfilled maybe two to three times. What would put someone into a boat like that when you can't swim in the dark of night with no view as to what's on the other side? Why would you put your family in a boat like that that you love like you love your family. Why would you do that? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why would you do that? Unless the land was so untenable. Unless where you're coming from is so terrible that you would get into a rubber raft not knowing how to swim. About 300,000 Syrians, a small percentage, have gained significant attention as they've marched into Europe. And suddenly it became very real to the United States because they're marching in amongst people that look like us. In fact, even the Syrian refugees look like us. To put it into perspective, that would mean, just in Syria alone, some 173 million Americans leaving America in the last three years. And as a result, the Syrian refugee crisis now represents the greatest migration of displaced people since World War II. As to why Syria is in the states they're in, folks, I only have 30 minutes. Uh, <laughs> and I don't know if you've ever studied this one, but it is confusing and chaotic. And there's all sorts of, in fact, we're learning new terms, aren't we? Proxy war. Where global powers actually use one single country and begin to work out their, their animosities toward one another through this one space. I think of Salah, this nurse practitioner that I met. She's got a degree in psychology. She's also a nurse practitioner. She and her husband were inside a city in Syria, and it just started getting bombed, and regularly so. She realized that she was probably no safer in her home than just to get out of it, and so she told her husband, we're going to wait until it's all clear. And so sure enough, a no-fire order was given through the community. So she told her husband, now's its time. We've got to move. They grabbed their two kids. They ran out into the street. Unfortunately, some of the snipers and some of the towers hadn't been told. They took out her husband. As she was running, she grabbed her two kids. She made it across. But by the time she made it across all the checkpoints to get out of Syria, she lost everything. So now she was living in the seventh story of a refugee camp in Lebanon, an old refugee camp from 1948 when the Palestinians left, on the seventh story of a very rickety building, taking care of four kids. I said, where did the other two children come from? Are they yours? She said, yes, they're mine. I said, you said you only had two kids. Sometimes these interviews are really confusing. She said, well, I do. Well, then who are these two kids? And there was a four-year-old and a two-year-old. She said, as we were leaving after my son had been shot, I saw these two kids in the street. So I grabbed them. Are they going to stay with you? She turned to me. They're my kids. Although the horrors of this conflict are very real for the persons displaced by it, the, the violence, unfortunately, has been pretty much off the Western smart screens. 
And that was until, of course, we had a little boy on a beach. And he just reminded most of us of what our sons look like when they're sleeping. Our grandchildren look like. And in speaking about the, the frequency, frequently on this whole crisis, I, it's, I just notice a, a helplessness that begins to kind of rise up when we begin to hear these numbers. I mean, after all, you and I don't have access to the U.S. military. We, we don't tap into the U.N. budget. Uh, you know, we don't have on our smartphones Bill and Melinda Gates. But that doesn't mean we, don't, we just somehow take a pass. Jesus gave us this image. There's a guy in a ditch. There's one guy in a ditch. And you're walking by. To remind yourself of this axiom, this truth. Uh, when I was at a very large church in Chicago, we had this little phrase, and it went like this. Numbers have faces. The faces have names. The names are very precious to the Father. And if they're precious to the Father, shouldn't they be precious to you and I? On Friday, I spoke about a generational challenge. Each of us is being called to take care of. And in the time remaining, I just want to maybe give us four things I'd like us to pay attention to if we could. Four. We'll make it super easy for me. We'll make it super easy for you. Number one, are you praying? Are you praying up? Are you praying? I cannot underestimate the importance of prayer in this particular very dark battle. It's, it's very easy to be confronted by just the level of human need. The greatest human exodus, certainly since World War II for one country, Syria. But you're talking about inside the larger context of 50 to 60 million refugees globally right now. 50 to 60 million. 86% of those refugees are going into fragile states. They're not coming into nations like ours. They're going back into fragile states, making them already fragile. Are we praying? Do we, do we speak? about these people to God that's actually the number one request when we talk to workers who are in the field dealing with these folks in their very real experience they're saying there is a spiritual element to this that we need people paying attention to do we pray as the apostle Paul asked to the church in Thessalonica with these words that the word of the Lord would spread rapidly and that he would receive glory he prayed for the church that it would be rescued from perverse and evil men do we pray that I met a pastor, George, in Lebanon. He ministers to 1,500 refugees. He says, I don't have much, but I know that the biggest part of my battle is spiritual. And so what he does, actually, so that he can take this in personally, he stands at the market where he knows refugees with chits, where they're going to get food from the UN, go. And he stands at the doorway, and as they come out, he looks for the men and says, I would just, as a Lebanese man, like to tell you I love you and care for you. Of course, this is shocking to a refugee because they get a lot of abuse. They're second-class citizens in Lebanon. Maybe not even that. And so he says, can I embrace you? Okay, men, talking of physical distance, physical proximity, touch. Can I embrace you? He said, many men say yes. And as he does so, they begin to weep. He says, Steve, it's spiritual. The battle we're waging is one of encouragement, is one of love. It's spiritual. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Do we pray for the health of the church in the Middle East? Is that part of our prayer? 
We have to make a decision. We have to make a radical shift in our thinking. We have to see the Syrian people as predominantly victims, not perpetrators, as objects of God's grace rather than ones we turn our backs on. And that's why World Vision puts a huge emphasis on prayer. Do we pray for the Middle East? As a child-focused agency, we also make our prayer emphasis on the psychosocial needs of these kids. Gang, half of these refugees are children, and what they have seen is mind-blowing. I told the group on Friday, I'm sitting in a group with a number of kids and their mothers. The fathers are not there. Many of the fathers are dead or gone. And as we're listening to the kids' stories, each one is giving us a reason why they painted the little picture they did with crayons. Most of them are stick figures, as you would guess. They're four and five-year-olds. So we just kind of go through, and you get some that are the kind of stories you would get from a class here. Maybe a child care service. And then you get to the one odd one. And this is my house. And those are the two cars. And that's the sun, moon, and the stars. And then you make the, the comment that you would make if you were sitting there. And that's a nice blue that you've got inside the house. And the girl goes, yes, that's an airplane. Anywhere else, you'd go, nice color. But then you recognize that it was aerial bombardment that blew up her house. Then it draws you into context when the next child says, and that thing right there, that's a bomb, and that landed on my dad's head. And they say it dispassionately because they've replayed it over inside their head over and over again. Do we pray for the children that are caught up in this conflict? Do we pray for the staff that works for them? What do we pray for? Anyone, by the way, can take time to do this. Do we intercede for the hearts of international leaders, the souls of the enemy? Do we pray for the leaders of ISIS? Of all the faiths out there, this ought to be one in which we pray for the leaders of ISIS, that they would come to the truth, that their lives would be convicted by what they're doing, that they would see it for what it is, and that they would come into an understanding as to who really does stand over the nations. After all, ours is the, the faith that its entire New Testament, the majority of it, was, was written by a person who was a Christian-killing terrorist, the Apostle Paul. The most potent weapon we have in our arsenal is prayer. Do we use it? And if we pray up, don't be surprised if you start getting a hunger for something else that you begin to wise up. Wise up. In 1993, the then Washington Post reporter Michael Weisskopf dismissed Christian evangelicals as largely poor, uneducated, and easy to command. And this is my tribe. I was an insider. And I, 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 uh, I was kind of irritated when I heard this. I mean, I resemble that remark. Um, I mean, I guess I am kind of sometimes easy to command. As you might expect, he later wrote, there is no factual basis for that statement. The paper was very quick to say that. From, from my tribe, I hear the most unkind remarks when it comes to Syrian and Iraqi refugees. And it's often from those who have spent scant time attempting to see them as people loved by God. Do we see people who bear God's image? Do we see that? I heard one pastor recently corral all Muslims with the term uh, demon religion. Do we see Muslims? Or do we see people loved by God? Did you know that the Muslims revere Jesus as Isa, 
a prophet. We can actually talk to them about Jesus. And they love to talk about Jesus, that 99 names for God are actually honored by Christians as well. This isn't to say that we agree on the means of salvation or a relationship with God, what Jesus did on the cross or our future hope, but there's plenty that we can begin to have a conversation with them in. Did you know that? And by the way, they're the far greatest recipients of these tragedies. Disproportionately so, the number of refugees in the world are predominantly Muslims. The size of the situation is critical, and as an organization, we are motivated by our faith to care for these kinds of people. We reach out to them through the church, through other organizations. In some cases, we even partner with Muslim organizations, and our partnership conversations are mind-blowing when it comes to talking about the love of Jesus. Are you making an attempt to read more than the news that's just coming at you, to understand the stories behind the news, to take a deeper dive, selecting a country, using world vision as a source? We'd love to be that for you. So praying up, wising up. I'd also like to say I think we need to be speaking up to become a voice for those who don't have one. At present, there's a dialogue in our land as to how we treat the foreigner, how we treat the stranger. For you and I, thankfully, the subject was settled long ago when Moses actually said, I think I'm hearing from God, and this is what he is saying. This is the way we're supposed to treat them. And then as our Savior of the world comes, entering into our time and space, and he comes as a refugee. Spent a little time in Egypt. As a foreigner, we're their advocate. We're to care for them. These are God's orders. And let me be clear, as I'm fairly certain, if public surveys are accurate, a a percentage of us are probably somewhat uncomfortable with what I'm saying. I'm sometimes uncomfortable with what I'm saying. I think governments are great things. I think they have a role to play in managing public safety. I think we're to exercise our vote in the democratic process. I think we're supposed to find ways to keep ourselves safe. But I also know that doesn't absolve me from doing what the Lord has ordered me to do. And if I'm not doing that, what's holding me back? The Syrian refugee crisis that we did just two months ago said that the group that's most afraid, most fearful when it comes to refugees is us. Those who are followers of Jesus. The question is, can we move beyond our fear and establish faith? Can we do that? Can faith regain control? David in the Psalms 27.1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And then as if he mi- we missed it the first time, 56.3, When I am afraid, I trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal men do to me? God seemed determined to just underline it yet again. For I am the Lord, my God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear. I will help you. Do we believe that? Jesus, just to make sure we got it again, says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What was that quote from the church in the third century? Heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. Fear has a tough time rattling a person who's already died to himself. It's just the truth. 
Our staff right now is caring for over two million of these Syrian refugees in very practical ways. We would be the largest indexed organization in this fight. We're working with local partners who are the hands and feet of Jesus, and you can, you can play a part in supporting that revolutionary act of countercultural love, because that's exactly what it is. Jesus told us we would have to expect that we're going to have trouble, but that he had already overcome it. What am I asking you to do this morning? Pray up, wise up, speak up. But congruency also dictates that you probably act up. Someone once described the church as the only organization in the world that exists for the benefit of its non-members. That's who we are. We're the body of doers. The safety net, by the way, right now for this fragile Arab communities is literally falling apart. Let me just give you net it out for you. The $32 that you got per person if you registered with the UN is down to $8. That's per person for a month. Most of the families now are not registering. And the reason why is they're afraid they're going to get sent back. And if they go back, they know they will die. And so where do you get money if you can't have a job, if your children can't be educated? 20% of the kids in most of these areas that we're talking about are educated, 20%. There's a lot of reasons for that. Governments are trying to do the right thing but they're out of cash. Most of the governments that give to the UN, by the way, only 50% have given what they said they would give. So at some point you run out of cash. It's what happens with budgets. And then, of course, we didn't think the Syrian refugee crisis would last for four to five years, and we didn't think it would be as big as it is. So what do we do with that? Nations like Lebanon, they're four million people. They've just taken in 1.8 million people in the last three years. You do that. I'm pretty judgmental sometimes of some of these nations, the way they do it, and then I just start thinking about the numbers of people they are dealing with, and they're already fragile. That would be like 85 million Canadians coming across the border in the next four years. 85 million. And we freaked out when we found out there was about 1,000 Hispanic kids coming up from the South just last year. Our indispensable partner is the local church. Not every local church is willing to engage in these areas, but there are some who are just showing historic and heroic acts of compassion. For some of us, it's food distribution. World Vision's involved in clothing and shelter. We're doing a channels of hope because a lot of these men are getting frustrated and they're starting to hit their wives. And as they hit their wives, of course, the whole community just begins to dissolve. So we're moving in to try and solve some of that in predominantly Muslim communities. Our World Vision programs are replete with child-friendly spaces as well as we try and give a kid just a one safe place, a certain number of hours in which they can begin to unpack in a very colorful place with trained professionals. That's simple enough. We're to find practical ways to serve the body of Christ here and abroad. We're called to care for those fellow believers, providing for those who share our faith. That sounds like common sense. But when we keep drawing a circle around us, God just keeps drawing a circle that's bigger than ours. What was that Galatian phrase? As we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. And so World Vision's budgets to everybody, anyone in need. It's tens of millions of dollars right now poured out so that these, everyone can have life in all of its fullness. Clean water systems, informal tent settlements, waste treatment. What do you do with the waste for all these people when the government system is already broken? 
So we're working with municipalities in Lebanon, just Lebanon as a nation, one nation, working with the municipality because at some point we got to tap their line. They said, we'll fix our system then. So we're helping fix their system while we also fix the refugee system. It's what you do. And as a child-focused agency, of course, we're trying to take care of these kids. Right now in Lebanon alone, 40,000 new babies every single year to Syrian refugee mothers. They will grow up. They will follow someone. Who will they follow? In Stanford, at a talk I gave, the person said, whoever feeds them, I think he's right. Acting up means understanding the future generation of Middle East leaders is presently living in a disadvantaged state in place that needs to be touched. Do we touch them? Are we willing to touch them? Well, I started this talking about images and I, I couldn't help but thinking about this one that rescued me. He created an image for me as to what love looks like. It's why the Apostle Paul, overwhelmed by God's gracious gift of forgiveness, would later write to an insecure body of believers in Colossians 1, for he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then remembering that image God gave to free us from fear and all these kinds of things, this is what Paul says, the Son is the image of the invisible God. And then I just find it shattering, wildly good so, that the passage we used this morning is that he then says, and I'm going to make you an image. I'm going to make you an image of myself. And when you see me naked, you clothe me. If you want to be faithful, when you see me hungry, you feed me. When you see me alone, you come and visit me. A prisoner? And when you do this to the likes of these kind, you'll be doing it to me. An image that's personal, an image that's real, an image that's you acting on behalf of as an image bearer of his. At the close of the service, there's some information we'd love to give you if you want to wise up on the issue of the refugee crisis, if you'd like to act up or engage with us. Right now, we're building a movement because that's what it's going to take. In the same way we did around HIV and AIDS, it's going to take the whole church. This issue is that big. I pray that you will pray along with me as we begin a movement of compassion to push against the darkness, to show who Jesus really is in this moment in which we have prayed for the nations. And wouldn't you know it, God uses this kind of issue to open the nations and bring them to us. Praying up, wising up, speaking up, acting up. Father, thank you for the opportunity to just share this morning to dive into your scriptures some and to recognize that you are the great lover of the entire world, so much so that you would send your son. Father, make that real to us as we begin to reflect what our role might be in this crisis. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to be a part. God of justice Savior to all Came to rescue the weak and the poor Chose to serve and not be served Jesus
Sovereign God, God who created all people in your image, God who entrusted creation and history into our hands, 
we turn to you. You made us to live together in peace, in justice, in right relationships. Yet there is so much in our world that is so threatening and painful to see and to hear that we are tempted to run away, to close our eyes, to shut our ears, to dampen the warm feelings of brotherly and sisterly love. Awaken our consciences, illumine our thoughts, stir our compassion, motivate our wills, fill our hearts with generosity. We ponder the suffering of women, men, and children. We are perplexed by the sight of weak, powerless, displaced people having no place to lay their heads having little food to fill their bellies, who huddle together in the cold to be warmed, who live in exile from their native lands. We pray for them. Renew their hope. Sustain their spirits. Open doors for new beginnings in peace, especially for the refugees from Syria who have fled war, discrimination, and injustice. May they trust that you listen. May we be part of your answer. We look for a new exodus that will lead them home. Bless the mission of World Vision and of all relief agencies at work in dangerous places and circumstances. We are often so comfortable, so well-fed, warm in our houses, surrounded by secure walls. We can only imagine what it must be like to leave our places of security and well-being. Dear Lord, we believe that you do see, that you hear, that your heart hurts, your spirit hovers over the nations and blows through our souls. Breathe into us your desire to heal, to bind up, to feed, to set free, to open doors, and to celebrate the Sabbath that you desire for all people. We remember leaders in all nations this morning who seek to respond to this humanitarian crisis. We ask your protection for all who serve your kingdom in these unstable places continue to inspire the people of Laguna Presbyterian Church with a generous spirit so that we may reach our community with love and care about the broken and the homeless and the hurting here, but also the larger world. Bless our morning offering. May it reflect the depths of our commitment to you and the compassion that we feel. We pray in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. 
For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.